Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. This week, a special episode about the life and career of Muhammad Ali, who profoundly influenced the worlds of sports, entertainment, and media. Ahead, a discussion of Ali's impact on sports television, the market for Ali memorabilia, and his impact on social justice. First, a few details about the man before we get to our guests. $50 to $80 million, Ali's net worth at the time of his death, according to websites like Celebrity Net Worth, much of them from selling an 80% stake in his licensing company, CKX Inc., in 2006. Whatever the actual figure, it's a far cry from what boxing champions like Floyd Mayweather earn today. His fortune estimated at about a half a billion dollars, according to Forbes. Ali did receive $6 million for the Thrilla in Manila in 1975, one year after earning a bit over $5 million for the Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire. Floyd Mayweather profiting from pay-per-view fights, he has the champ to thank. Ali's fights around the globe challenged the TV industry to come up with ways to beam them back live to adoring fans around the world. The lessons learned led to the first pay-per-view fight in 1973 between Joe Frazier and George Foreman. Ali always had a memorable line at the ready to promote his fights and himself. He was a master showman who even gave the World Wrestling Federation a boost by participating in the main event of the first WrestleMania at Madison Square Garden in 1985. But the bluster was backed by the boxing. He's considered one of the best fighters ever. Now, more on Muhammad Ali's impact on sports television and society, my conversation with Ross Greenberg, former head of HBO Sports, who currently heads his own production company. You obviously have a very significant perspective from the HBO Sports angle, president from 2000 to 2011, but also know more about boxing than almost anybody alive. So just top down, Ali's legacy in the ring from the television perspective. Well, he changed the dynamics. He changed the way television looked at boxing. Uh, Basically, he and his power as a fighter initiated the closed-circuit boxing event, which brought televised fights away from the general networks and into the marketplace where people would gather at arenas, stadiums, and whatnot to watch on a big screen a Muhammad Ali fight. So right then and there, he changed the business dynamic of the sport. And boxing's always been, been at the forefront and ahead of its time in terms of generating revenue because you have so many significant greedy promoters and managers that want to accumulate as much money as possible. So it's always looked for different forms of distribution. So Ali set the stage to, to engineer that uh, change. And what it did was, you know, Jerry Parencio in 1971 created Ali Frazier 1. And as a promoter, he walked away with tens of millions of dollars. Two fighters made $2.5 million each. But by firing up all these big screens around the country and indeed firing up the fight around the world, he was able to generate, Muhammad Ali was, uh, 
unquestionably, you know, the largest audience in the history of sports in, in the world. <laughs> You're in a position as HBO Sports guru uh, during uh, uh, time, 20 years after he fought, really in a serious way, let's say. Um, his legend was enduring even then. Have you ever seen a celebrity that uh, sustained with so many generations basically two-thirds of his life after he left the ring? Well, I mean, I think there are certain figures that transcend sports. He's, he was obviously at the forefront of that. So, you know, his legacy will live on for hundreds and hundreds of years the way Babe Ruth has. And, and I think that's because of the impact, different than Babe Ruth, his impact around the world and, and what he stood for as a humanitarian uh, will live on forever. And, you know, what, what I think he's proven is that, you know, you can step out of the ring, you can lose fights, but you can maintain kind of uh, a glorious, legendary status as a, not only a, a human being, but as a businessman. You know, I'm struck... People are starting to understand, and I heard Don King talking about it. He was one of the great promoters in history. He was never a promoter of boxing. But, in fact, no one promoted a fight like Muhammad Ali. I mean, his gift of jab of, you know, out of his mouth it was legendary. And, you know, creating those, that poetry and, and sharp, you know, of mind, he was able to just take everyone's attention and direct it right at the fight that was coming up. Um, but his legacy will always be, you know, his humanitarian image and, and what he did for people the world over and taking the downtrod downtrodden up and also for himself kind of proving that you can be an outspoken black man in white American society and, uh, and kind of overpower those that are trying to keep you down. And the Ali Center's legacy will testify to that for centuries to come. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is interesting. You look back at a lot of his uh, his his comments. Uh, he would have been one of the uh, one of the best uh, rappers in the history of the world uh, should he have chosen to do that. And 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 frankly, when you take a look at some of his comments, uh, how how did it help? The, the transcending from from network to cable, the promotion, the prepackaging, that that this was his own marketing agency. You said that he and uh, and Frazier got a very small cut of that first uh, pay per view fight, but uh, but uh, it's easy for him to be the marketer of it. You just crank him up and let him go. Yeah, and that's what promoters understood very early on with Ali, whether it was King or Aram or whoever was promoting a Muhammad Ali fight. They knew that, you know, just give him a microphone, put a press conference together, and let him rip. And, uh, and that's exactly what used to happen because, you know, understand a couple of things in terms of his business. He, three and a half years he was in exile. Um, prior to him going into exile, no one talks about this fight, but he fought a guy named Cleveland Williams. That Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter that ever climbed into a, into a boxing ring. I don't care what the division. Yes, I have great respect for Sugar Ray Robinson and Nauseam and others. But I am telling you, if you watch that fight, you will see the brilliance of Muhammad Ali. That Muhammad Ali was taken away from us for three and a half years. 
God knows what he would have generated if he was fighting for those three and a half years and beating, you know, Joe Frazier, who he probably would have beaten at that prime part of his career easily. Um, I, I have no clue as to how transcendent he would be, but it would have been scary to see that athlete in the ring. The fact is that even without that, he was able to fight, you know, in I don't know, three Frazier fights, which were three of the most significant fights in boxing history. He fought the Foreman fight in Zaire, which became maybe the biggest upset next to maybe Tyson Douglas in heavyweight history and boxing history. And and he just had a, a litany of incredibly important Norton fights and others that uh, that really took the sport to another level that we'll never see again. And, um, I, I, you know, I've always anticipated over the last 20 years when he did pass what kind of impact it would have. I kind of, in my own mind's eye, I, I predicted that this would happen, that, that people would finally understand in death uh, how huge this man was, um, how, how transcendent he was. Uh, and I think he did all of that because, you know, I just saw a clip of him today. He was 50 years old and he had just quit. Uh, I guess 10 years earlier, um, but he said his goal now is to spread his word of peace and love and harmony the world over. Now, unfortunately, Parkinson's didn't let him do that for the last 20 years um, in terms of speaking his mind, but he was animated and so good with people as he you know, went around the country and didn't speak but carried a big stick, and uh, we'll never forget him. Interesting. Ross Greenberg, uh, perspective uh, from HBO that no one's seen. Uh, you see Michael Jordan, you see Babe Ruth, you make some comments about transcendence. But th- those, th- those p- folks probably wouldn't stop wars. Uh, maybe the Pope right. and certainly Muhammad Ali could stop wars, and I guess that's all you need to say. That's a great point. I mean, the fact is, you know, he believed in his principles, he believed in his uh, convictions, whether it was the Vietnam War or or peace around the world, or taking people from poverty and giving them hope. Um, he believed in that so heartfelt and so, you know, intensely that that you know that was what guided him. Whereas when you mention Ruth and Jordan, you know, great men, great athletes, but the sports themselves drove those men. And uh, you know, Ali had both. And uh, incredibly rare. Uh, there's a one other athlete that I had the opportunity to meet in my lifetime and become very close to, and that's Arthur Ashe, who I thought of in the last days. Because other than Ali, that's the only other man that I thought kind of took his platform and reached out and, and kind of, you know, and Billie Jean King, I would say, who I've also become very close to. Those three, in my mind, have changed the world. Great perspective. Let's look at the business of Muhammad Ali, specifically the memorabilia market. I talk with Brandon Steiner, president of the collectibles company Steiner Sports. Steiner's been a partner through Omnicom, which bought my company and his. How did uh, Ali's image set him apart uh, in in the context of the day-to-day business of selling stuff? I think it's very similar to him, and, and you know, there's always a con- there's always a controversy whether you can compare sports to business. But I think you know when you differentiate yourself and you do things that are meaningful to people, uh, that you create an emotional connection with people, those things are a big part of what sh- 
really changes your mind about whether to buy one product over another. You know, an emotional connection, the product has a difference. And, you know, you got to have some balls. I mean, you know, Muhammad Ali, I mean, in the peak of his career, did something um, that, you know, stood up for something, got behind a cause, and continued to go and fight that cause. But he was a showman. He was an entertainer. We've seen a lot of those come and go. But, you know, he really captured a whole lot of different things in one career and um, meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, So for me, he was different from that fact that that besides the popularity was international. I mean, there was nobody on the planet that wanted some connection to him. And at the same time, licensing was really strong for him, which is not always true with a lot of athletes. You know, some athletes have some marketability, but they don't have licensing ability. He was likability, credibility, licensing ability, marketing ability. He was the whole thing. There's not many going to be many Muhammad Ali's in our time. Um, but, you know, he was, he was a guy also that was uh, serving. You know, he served every day. Whenever I'd run into him, he would have a stack of a couple hundred autographs on him on different prayer pamphlets and different things he was handing out. He was perpetually on the road. I remember his schedule was incredibly hectic, going to different parts of the world, not always for money and not always from a financial capital gain. He's a special guy. Let's talk about the prayer pamphlets piece of this. That is interesting because we've had the guys from the Muhammad Ali Center on and the life after Ali and what the legacy is and the thought leadership conferences and the tie into UNESCO, United Nations, and things that will be obvious 5, 10, 15 years from now, not just today. What's your favorite Muhammad Ali moment relative to um, him as a worldwide ambassador? Oh, well, I mean, there's so many, but, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I love, I mean, I'm, I'm a little crazy this way, but I love this time with Malcolm X. You know, he spent time with a lot of radical people that there wasn't always, you know, in the, in the pretty, pretty, and certainly, you know, all the trash talking with Frazier, although, you know, getting to know Frazier, I kind of got a little sour on that because as much as I enjoyed Ali trash talking and beating down Frazier was comical, but I think it took its toll on, on, on Frazier. So it became less of my favorite moment. My favorite moment, um, I, I think for him, it, for, you know, for me watching him was really just, you know, deciding that he was going to go stand up and, and go to jail as opposed to fight. I mean, it's a big give, you know, for something that he didn't want to do. I mean, that's, you know, to go to jail, he could have, I'm sure he could have finagled his way out of not having to go fight in arm's way. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, sure. And, you know, he could have avoided jail time and kept his career going and everything else. And she got to understand the magnitude. So a lot of people kind of take a sideways approach to that. But I think that was a big deal for him to, you know, basically <laughs> give up two, three years of his career and at the same time go to prison and go fight the fight. Of course it is. And people will realize that that transcends and that may be one of his uh, – his long-term abilities to to stop wars. Michael Jordan and Babe Ruth would stop traffic, but uh, Ali might have been able to stop wars. So it's kind of an interesting perspective. Give me your business hat for just a couple of minutes on this one. Um, he and his wife eventually sold an 80% stake in creative control to CKX of greatest of all time. They were talking about, again, newspaper reports. You would know better. Four to seven million in annual revenue, endorsements, and Adidas Electronic Arts, all of that. The memorabilia business... He's on the top 100 celebrities list. He's the best ever at celebrity as well. Um, Is he now well-positioned to take advantage of the 
legacy that's been created from now uh, your perspective, the memorabilia perspective, the estate perspective? I think so. I think I think when it, you know, first of all, it's Under Armour now. It was Adidas. Under Armour has done a nice job. They have they've been putting out some of his products all along, and I see Muhammad Ali jewelry and. Uh, there's a bunch of things that they'll still be done. He'll be used in commercials and in advertisements, his legacy. Um, so I think he's in good position. I mean, yeah, listen, a lot's been done. I mean, the guy definitely, not nothing but the best for him, but he lived a lot longer than anyone thought he was going to live when they did that deal as many as 15 years ago. So I'm not saying they did that deal thinking he was or wasn't going to live, but there was a lot that's transpired that's already happened. So for a lot more to happen post him passing, I, I don't know. But I, you know, there's there's talk about thirty or forty thousand autographs in the till that they've collected and put away over time. I know that he, he could he can only sign up to a certain point. He was he really stopped signing uh, I think three or four years ago. So there's a lot of good collectibles that have been put together. But Muhammad Ali signed a lot of autographs. I mean, he was a, he was a very active signer, you know, from the memorabilia business. A lot of his stuff from his game used. Things from his fights got either stolen or sold, and is out there in the marketplace. Um, but there are some things that you know that that company still has from proprietary rights that's still yet to be done. But a lot of books and photo books and a lot of things have been done. A lot of great collectibles have been done. I mean, uh, Muhammad again was a very active autograph signer, so a lot of his autograph stuff is out there. As you can see right now, you know I've been searching around looking. And you see thousands and thousands of items out there, so you need to go and buy something and be really careful. Uh, there, and also there's some, some bad fraudulent stuff out there. So there's a time when you actually want to wait and let the market kind of shake out and see who's got the real autographs if you want to get something real or particularly if you want to get something like his contract or game you stuff from his fights. This is probably not the time when you want to buy something. But as the world's great authenticator on all of this stuff, do you, do you see – and I guess there are some estate issues, too, here relative to almost to kind of like Prince and his thousands of undistributed uh, audio in his basement somewhere. Is this the same kind of thing? Are we going to see some really good stuff trickling out over time? No, I don't think so. I think a lot of it has already trickled out, although they are sitting with a bunch of game-used, when I say game-used, you know, artifacts that he used uh, from his old house. Uh, rings that he has fought in. There, there's some things to trickle out, but not, you know, a lot of his fights and all, all the all the uh, videos and all that stuff is out there already. Again, a lot of the licensed stuff has been done. If it's out there now, it's you know, it's not. I don't expect to see anything riveting uh, to come out. I don't. I don't. Um, again, there's a definitely a, a warehouse full of autographed stuff and licensed stuff that is yet to be distributed. I think the name and legacy goes on for a long, long time, you know, very similar in the Jackie Robinson uh, and maybe even bigger. You know, I, I think there's plenty of other things to be done. But remember, the documentary's been done. The movie's been done. You know, a lot of stuff's been done. Um, so um, I think it carries forward, even though those things have been done. But I don't think anybody's going to wake up and go, wow, I can't believe that they're finally doing this for him you well, know, it, it's, you know, or doing this with him. With his, with his license or his legacy. And finally, more on the legacy of Muhammad Ali outside the ring. I spoke with Eli Wolf. He heads the Inclusive Sports Initiative at the Institute for Human-Centered Design in Boston. He also directs the Sport and Development Project at Brown University and has worked on many projects with the Muhammad Ali Center.
you've told me that you were a member of the U.S. Paralympic soccer team and a member of the national team and competed in several Pan American Games and World Championships. Um, how did you transform from there to being involved with all of these elements of social change and then specifically Ali? No, excellent. I, um, I had a chance to compete as an athlete at the Olympic level. And then I think from that stage, I got connected to Richard Lapchik, who's sort of been the godfather of, of sport and social change and social issues. And he's really become my mentor, really opened my eyes and the doors to see the power of sport and how sport can be a vehicle for social change. Um, and so my work has really focused on issues of disability and social change but then it also got involved with just athletes, the power that athletes have to, uh, to have a transformative power in their communities and their societies. And so Richard was the one who introduced me to um, the Ollie Center and the Ollie family. And then about four years ago, we initiated this forum, this international forum on the role of athletes and power of social change. And so you know, really it's taken off a lot of athletes, a lot of ambassadors from around the world um, really having that space to have that conversation, to really realize that legacy of Muhammad Ali and how he's really served. And so, you know, really it's a, it's really been a sad couple of days, of course, um, and, but also inspiring in many ways to see all over the world how he has had such an impact on, on young people, on athletes, and how they think about them. You're seeing tweets, you're seeing messages from athletes, you know, NBA players, uh, professional athletes, Olympians, it's really been amazing to see that the power that Muhammad Ali has had in, in our lives and in the world. The Social Change Forum that I know you were involved with in conjunction with the Ali Center this last April with the theme Creating a Declaration for Human Rights in Sports, a think tank for scope, impact, and framing a declaration of human rights in sports, put some meat on the bones. What, what does that mean and what did the conference do? Each year, we've had a forum with a different topic. You know, one year was focusing more on the media and conversations in the media about the role of athletes. Um, this past year on the declaration, it was a little bit more policy-focused in terms of, you know, what policies do sport organizations have, you know, the ways that athletes can really utilize their platforms to speak about, you know, human rights and social change issues, and how are we really, how are we really coming together as a global community around social change and human rights and whether that's focusing on, you know, issues of gender, on race, on sexual orientation, on disability, on environmental issues, on, you know, labor rights, on, on whatever those issues are that athletes um, and our sports culture really need to be addressing in terms of our broader society. Um, that's really what the forum is about. It's about giving um, athletes and those organizations working in the space around social change to have the um, platform to be able to have those conversations. So and really it's a chance for um, really, I mean, there's not really that many places where you can actually be in the location of the Ali Center um, and actually have that history of that legacy and that inspiration. You know, I think that's really the big thing with athletes is that they're really oftentimes looking for support, looking for a community. Uh, many athletes that are doing social change work are oftentimes isolated. You know, they don't really have that community. And so that's really been a big part of what we've been trying to do is really just build that community so that athletes know that they can be with others um, 
and also that there's a scope of there's a spectrum of this type of work that it's from going into the community on a, on a couple days a week basis to actually taking up a political or social issue on, you know, in terms of, you know, like the um, Black Lives Matter or, you know, things like that that are more charged and, and, and require a little bit more commitment in terms of, of campaigning and things like that. So it's really a diverse range of topics, but it's, it's always very inspiring and it's always very important conversations and, and oftentimes lead to very tangible kind of actions, whether it's new programs, new organizations, new um, policies, all that kind of things kind of rolls out as part of the forum. Well, and, and clearly, it's important for athletes, but it's also important for society. And when you look at some oh, of the yeah. people who are who are listed as supporters, you obviously as an organizer, but Greg Luganis involved, Nancy Hogshead involved, Olympians yeah. uh, uh, par excellence, Charles Gwynn of the Muhammad Ali, Ali Center uh, involved yeah. with the organization. So tell me a little bit specifically about the Ali Center, you're not involved, but you're yeah. related. And so, g- give us give us an idea of the of the force of that organization and what it what it might now do after Ali's passing. Yeah, no, the the uh, Ali Center is really this amazing you know place. It's it's been around for many years already, and then I think now it's even going to take on an even more of a significance, more of a life in terms of the people. So I think it'll sort of become that mecca if you will, of that center for sport and social justice. Um, so the, uh, the Ali center has been created. It's been more of a museum. So when you go to the Ali center, you can see a lot of the historical aspects of Muhammad Ali's life. They have an amazing video of his, you know, his journey, um, a lot of really great inspirational quotes and experiences and exhibits. Um, so that's really been an amazing part of the Ali center. And they also host different events and different forums. And so, you know, we basically had an honor and opportunity to start organizing the forum there at the Ali Center um, to bring people there. Um, but the Ali Center, it really has an educational focus around the core principles, the core values of Muhammad Ali um, that include, you know, all of his issues, particularly the ones around conviction and respect and um, dignity. You know, those are some of the core values that, Muhammad Ali has really rallied around on um, that bring people together. And again, another element of that has really been his role as a role model, his role as a mentor to young people, to other athletes, the other boxers and so forth. And uh, that was why when we talked to him about doing a kind of a global initiative around mentorship, that that really resonated. And um, Lonnie Ali and, and Muhammad and the whole family really got behind that idea around mentoring in terms of that that's an important part. You see that every day. You see athletes talking about, you know, who were your mentors? How did you get inspired in your sport, both at a skill level as well as, you know, how do you live your life both on and off the field? Um, so I think that that's really been an exciting initiative as well that will carry on, you know, with, with Muhammad Ali's legacy and the center. Again, if you haven't been, I would encourage everyone to go because it's, especially anyone who's involved in sport in any way should definitely go there to, to just to be inspired and to learn that history of, of the sports culture. Well, we all have kind of a duty to now, and, and hopefully this uh, show in its own small way will help get the word out as well. I find yeah, it uh, sure. in, in, intriguing and, and, and frankly humbling that uh, some of the info uh, that I was made aware of in preparing for this relative to the uh, Social Change Forum in conjunction mm-hmm. with the Ali Center, when you take a look at what you call areas of inspiration, 
Convention on Rights of the Child, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, UNESCO Charter on Sport, Physical Education, Physical Activity, Convention mm-hmm. on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, Against Apartheid, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And so <laughs> this is clearly way, way, way beyond boxing. And you yeah. uh, a call for affiliations with UNESCO, the United Nations. So, so this is really, it's really heavy duty. It's, it's not just a, I don't want to be negative by just calling hmm. it a think tank, but it's way beyond yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting in terms of sports as a whole is there's, it's really this global movement of sport as the power of sport, sport as a vehicle for social change. It's it's really taking off globally. I mean, you're seeing thousands of organizations around the world really recognizing the role that sport has and the power that it has. I mean, you're, you're seeing grassroots organizations, you're seeing professional organizations, you're seeing athletes. And so you're really seeing this movement. And, and really, when you look back and seeing one of the pioneers or kind of a catalyst for this movement of seeing the power of sport, you can really look to Muhammad Ali, you can look to like the Billie Jean Kings and Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I mean, there's some athletes historically but Muhammad Ali has really been one of those, if not the one who is, you can really point to to say he was the inspiration and he's been the one that has really left this legacy of what sport means in our world. And so, and really what you're seeing now is, is just as you're looking at how to, how do all the areas of our society have important ramifications in terms of human rights, you know, sports is another area that we have to make sure that people have that respect, have that dignity, have their protections, um, and so I think that's where this is. I mean, I've been working with the United Nations now for the last, you know, 10 years on a number of the committees. I helped to organize um, April 6th, which is the International Day of the Power of Sport for Development and Peace. And so, you know, it's really interesting to be involved globally with all these international stakeholders. And then it's a, each, many of the conversations, many of the policy discussions, um, Muhammad Ali's name and his legacy is oftentimes evoked in terms of helping people concretize it to say, this is what we're talking about. This is how sport has this impact that it goes way beyond the playing field. It goes into all of our lives. And it's really important that young people, athletes, uh, managers, stakeholders, that we all realize that sport has this power influence that we have a responsibility for to make, to take care for it, to make sure that ethical standards are there. And so there's a lot there that's really important. So, Eli Wolf, thank you very much. Everybody talks about the money made at the Thriller in Manila and his 61 fights in 21 years uh, and the Holmes uh, knockout and even the greatest of all time licensing. But when you take a look at the Ali Center, whose tagline is be great and do great things, you realize Mm -hmm. there's much more than dollars attached to it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.